Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Net Positive Podcast. A podcast which educates and inspires marketers, product managers, and companies in the best way to generate and optimize your flows. We're your hosts, Matt Brown and Jess Walker, and we will bring you the latest on how to improve your signup flow, increase your leads, and grow your business. Let's Let's jump jump in. in. All right, so our very first guest on the Net Positive podcast is Anna Cheng. Anna's already had a really impressive career to date. She's currently Growth Marketing Manager at Bright, previously Head of Growth at Curious Thing, and before that, she was Spaceship's third employee, where she created a pre-launch viral campaign that had over 40,000 signups and helped them get to $100 million in funds under management in just four months. Anna is also a mentor at Zambezi, Techstars, UNSW, and Tech Ready Woman. So welcome, Anna. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, Look, we'd love to start off, obviously, you know, you've had an incredible career and we're going to dive into a number of uh, the paths on your journey, but we'd really love to hear a little bit about how you got here. Yeah, so it's a pretty long story. I started my first startup when I was 19 years old. Uh, It was to connect home chefs with consumers. The idea was if you're cooking four portions of spaghetti at home, you might as well cook an extra portion, sell it to someone, um, you know, maybe get back the money you spent on ingredients or even make a small profit. And back then I did all these hacky things. Like I would be cooking 60 portions of spaghetti in the uni kitchen, seeing if people would pay $7 for it. Would people pay an extra $3 for delivery or pick up from a central location or even pick up from someone else's home and did all these testing without realizing there were proper frameworks around how you should grow a company. Um, made a lot of like early startup mistakes as a uni student who was 19 would, you know, raised money off terrible terms, um, gave away too much equity. Um, we all do that the first time. But also yeah. impressive that you raised money when you were 19. Yeah, it was yeah. often an angel investor, but it was like 75K up front or 75 uh, and to meet a milestone. And if you didn't meet the milestone, you'd have to pay it back. But obviously optimism when you were, you know, 19 <laughs> years old was boundless and you were like, yeah, I'm never not going to make that milestone. So you don't even think about, you know, what would happen if you failed. Um, yeah, so after that, I went to Uprise, um, which is B2B, mental health company. And that's when I um, joined Murudi, which is an accelerator program. And I learned so much about startups. I just fell in love with it. It was a part-time job, which turned into full-time just because I really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, And then it was shortly after that, that I gave my first public speaking talk ever. And the CEO of Spaceship found me at that talk. Um, And so that's when I deferred uni. I quit my banking internship, which was meant to start the next day. And I said, I'm just going to you know, give Spaceship a try and see how it goes. So you avoided a life in banking. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, my general thought was, you know, if I'm in university and, you know, worst that could happen is I have to go back to corporate and start again. Um, and I felt like there was always a safety net with university where, you know, worst case scenario, I get another grad job at another big four, you know, accounting firm or banking firm sort of thing. So I wasn't too worried. Um, but, yeah, my mum wasn't happy that I deferred uni. <laughs> I noticed you haven't gone back to banking, still in the startup space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in fin- in finance and tech, like fintech yeah, awesome. space. So mum's um, okay with that. Um, so yeah, at Spaceship, I joined as their third employee. So I started when, you know, we had only 1.6 mil in funding. Um, we had like six people. We were just two desks basically at the back of the Tyro fintech hub. Um, you know, we had no customers, no product in market. And that's sort of where we started. Um, in my first four months, I actually happened to get them to 40,000 waitlisters, wow. um, which were waiting for us to, you know, launch our product into market. And then when we did launch, I was able to convert that into $100 million in funds under management. 
So off the back of that, we were able to raise $20 million of some of the world's most prestigious Amazing. investors. Um, so we were uh, we were Sequoia's first Australian investment. Um, we had NEA on board. We had, um, you know, Peter Thiel's fund, Valar Ventures. And we also had Horizons, who later on became one of our lead investors. What a rock star cap table. Yeah, awesome. And then we had like some of the best Aussie VCs as well. So we had Airtree on board and Grok as well, which is Mike Cannonbrook's fund. So... Um, yeah, it was like really interesting experience. So um, off the back of that, you know, by the time I left, you know, from zero employees, it was like a 43, I think. Um, and then, you know, from zero customers, we were at around 45,000 when I left. So and over $250 million in funds under management. So super interesting and a completely new product in market as well. Um, Fantastic. And, and then and then where did you go next? Yeah, then I was head of growth of an AI company called Curious Thing. Um, and I was just very interested in AI. I hadn't, obviously did not come from like a machine learning background or anything like that. I was just interested in the space. And what they're building is essentially a questioning engine. So quite different to how we would speak to Siri, which is a much more of like a data retrieval service. So it's more like human commands robot. Um, what they're trying to build is actually a questioning engine. So it goes the other way around. So it's more like uh, the robot will ask the human the question. The right. human will provide unstructured insights. The robot will structure the data and provide the analytics or the outcomes of that data in a more structured way to a different group of humans to make the decision. So I think that way of operating is very interesting. The technology has to understand the context of the questions you're asking, um, which just adds a whole level of complexity to building out the technology. It's but, a very bleeding edge. Yeah, yeah. But it's also definitely, you know, you'll discover more insights. So it's more about finding new knowledge as opposed to, you know, indexing data and just retrieving it. So awesome. I thought that was super interesting. I built out their um, front-end products there um, as well as, you know, implemented early-stage acquisition strategies. And then after that, I moved to Bright, which is where I am now as their growth marketing manager and product owner of their marketplace. We recently released um, Australia's first um, 100% green bond, which is super interesting. Incredible. Nothing like profit with impact. It's- yes, yeah. And Australia's the perfect place for solar energy as well. So it's just great. Completely. Beautiful completely. harmony. All right. So can we just go back to spaceships? So obviously, you had 40,000 signups pre-launch. So you had a viral campaign going. Can you tell us how you created that and how you iterated along the way? Yeah, so when I joined Spaceship, I was actually extremely unconfident in my role. I didn't, I felt like I wasn't qualified for it. I think that was probably a good thing. Um, so when I joined, I was a massive Elon Musk fangirl. I knew that he believed in first principles and I Googled what it meant and, you know, found out it had basis in physics, which is the idea of, you know, you should start with only the most essential truths and build up from that. And I took inspiration from that and I actually spent my first, you know, two weeks at Spaceship calling up basically 200 of our top referrers and just basically asking them um, questions about, you know, what do you like about super? Like what what don't you like about your current super fund? What do you care about when it comes to super? So is it transparency? Is it results? Um, And also I think the most, one of the most important questions is like, how would you describe Spaceship to a friend or a colleague? And then you, because usually when you start a business, you have a lot of jargon and industry knowledge that a lot of people don't understand. So I think you have to speak to customers in their own language. And that was one of the key takeaways. And so when I, after I did that, I was able to paint out this beautiful customer persona. Um, And at the start, I really only focused on one. And I think it's important to focus on ideally just like one or two. Reason for that is you want to have extreme focus, um, especially early in the, in the um, company and you can do things that don't scale as well. So we had a persona that looked around, you know, 25 to 35-year-old people um, working in technology. Um, and that was actually, you know, very basically our persona. And then from that persona, you can 
dig into d- different type of demographics as well as like different interests and things like that. So like, you know, even like what does it mean to work in technology that's sort of split into, you know, you've got people who are in design who associate themselves with technology. I'm in marketing. I also associate myself with technology. Obviously your software developers, your founders and CEOs, um, all of them sort of fit into this technology category. And then off the back of that, you know, I made a lot of experiments that had those specific people in mind. So when it came to building out the waitlist, I think one of the most important things was, you know, a waitlist is basically a, real, a glorified landing page. Um, and so if you don't have any acquisition channels or ways to build traffic to that landing page, then it basically just sits there and does nothing. So I think what when it came to building out the growth strategy for building out a waitlist, it sort of came to momentum. So it's like, how do I make sure that I get the most out of this and all the other campaigns that I ran? So how, like, did you, how did you keep people engaged while they're on a waitlist? You know, one of the big challenges with waitlists is you sign up all of these people and then, you know, it's a while before your product's launched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's like half of it would be the obvious, which is like the email drip campaigns. But the other one is about like maintaining hype. Like how do you just keep the hype up? And I think a lot of it is probably stuff that you, like happens to you quite often, but you just like don't actively recognize it. So things like you know, whenever there's someone you look up to. So for the tech community, it was like Mike Cannon-Brooks, Jane Liu. We use them a lot in our ads. So we were lucky because they were our early angel investors. Um, so we, I started running ads with Mike Cannon-Brooks on it, being like, you know, do you know where your super is invested? Why are you invested in BHP and the big four banks sort of thing? Um, ran those ads. Um, for female demographic, I ran Jane Liu ads about like e-commerce um, and, you know, do, like same sort of messaging, like, do you know where your super is invested? Why is it invested like you're retiring in five years <laughs> as opposed to 40? Like, why don't we have a product for millennials? You know, like by the time we retire, do we really think, you know, what makes up of 60% of the ASX now, which is, you know, mining, um, financial services and property, do we think that's what's going to be the core of our economy in 40 years? Like if you think it's technology like your Apples, your Facebooks, your Googles, then maybe you should change the weight of your portfolio and skew it a little bit more towards technology. So I think the general messaging around that was, okay, let's tackle, you know, the people that they look up to who would influence their decision. But, you know, unlike most, I guess, e-commerce stores, you're not going to see a Facebook ad and you're not going to transfer, you know, tens of thousands of dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars of your superannuation into a company you've just seen one Facebook ad from. So it's usually the human psychology of like, okay, well, I've got this. Now I need some social proof. Mm-hmm. So ideally we wanted to become like a pub brand. So something you'd talk um, about with a mate over a beer yeah, awesome. sort of thing. Like, have you heard about Spaceship? Um, what do you think about it? And so that was the second part. And that's where the referral program came in. So we were running all these ads to drive leads to the referral program. But the referral program worked really well because it also um, brought people to, well, encourage people to recommend Spaceship to friends, Um, as well as that I ran like a bunch of other ones to sort of tackle this particular desire to get more social affirmation, which is I ran, you know, uh, astronauts of the day campaigns. I superimposed people's faces onto planets. I posted on Twitter (laughs) and obviously, yeah. We might have to steal that one. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) They would obviously like retweet it because they've seen their face on it and Mm. they enjoy that um, along with the testimonial. And then all of their followers immediately would be like, okay, so my friend is associated with this brand. Um, Some other things that we did as well was, um, you know, on Intercom, when people signed onto our wait list, it would often have their email address and if they had signed onto Twitter with the same email address then what we were able to do was we were able to see their Twitter followers and 
you know, I by no means, you know, judge someone by their number of Twitter followers, but it's actually a great marketing tactic. So what we did was for everyone with over 5,000 Twitter followers, I would send them some surprise merch. I'd handwrite them a note, be like, can you please tweet this at Spaceship AU? That is then, so smart. Yeah, they'd tweet us and it's like basic and they retweet us or tweet the picture of the merch and basically be free 5,000 impressions just off the back of, you know, sending a free T-shirt that's, sort that's of thing. That's awesome. So things that don't scale but have massive mm. impact. Yeah, and I think that that really kept the hype going. Like people just couldn't stop hearing about Spaceship. Um, so it was like really good that we had that and as well as like PR um, mm-hmm. as well just to build trust with the brand for people who aren't maybe in tech. Was there anything with the sign-up flow that you thought, okay, this is working really well, this is a bit of a bit of an aha moment that you can transfer to future sign-up flows that you've created for different companies? Yeah, so I think one of my key learnings from building out the sign-up flow, which I'll probably deep dive into um, straight after this, but um, one of my key learnings and true beliefs is that, you know, we as humans, we haven't changed much like psychologically or even physically we haven't changed much since, for like tens of thousands of years. Um, it's unlikely that people are willing to change their behaviour. So what mm. you're trying to do with smart marketing tactics is not to change human behaviour but to basically tap tap into what already you already know drives consumer decisions. So the way that I built out the program is that, you know, you would enter your first, you would enter your email on the landing page, then you'd be taken to a form to fill out a lot of details about yourself, including your full name, your date of birth, your address, um, as well as your phone number to verify that you're a unique individual and then we'd said at the top of the page, hey, you're currently in group 36 to get early access to Spaceship. Um, if you complete this form, we'll bump you up an extra 10 groups so you'd be in group 26. And we actually had a 66% conversion on that page alone. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. And then on the next page, it'd be like, thanks for signing up. Um, you're currently in group 26. If you, For every person that you invite, we'll bump you up another five groups. So to be in group one, you'd be in group uh, so to be in group one, you'd have invited five friends. So we actually had a lot of people in group one. And this also allowed us to stage our launch. So when we did launch, we were able to launch a group one first, fix up any bugs they pick up, then launch the next group, fix that up. And so by the time we got to the end of the wait list, it was already a really well fleshed out product. Um, and I think that worked really well. But again, like going back to what I said, you know, it's not about creating new ideas and things like that. It's just about translating existing um, human psych ecology and the heuristics that we have when it comes to consumer marketing and just bring that onto a digital platform to scale it out to as many people as possible. So with this idea, it's definitely not new. So like decades ago, we used to be sending um, letters from letterbox to letterbox, basically saying, hey, sign this piece of paper for prosperity, and then you'd pass it to your neighbor. And then, you know, fast forward that a couple of extra years and we had MSN and I'd always get messages like, hey, forward this message to seven friends or you'll be ugly Mm. forever. (laughs) (laughs) We've we've all fallen for the train now. Yeah, and we'd all fall into that. Um, And then, you know, after that, you know, you've definitely seen like Robin Hood who also had immense success with Mm. a waitlist program and that worked really well as well. The, The only difference they did was they just had like, you were 15,000 in line, which we felt like was a bit demotivating. So we didn't do that. Extremely demotivating. <laughs> I think the groups is a really nice hack because yeah, they probably were yeah. 15,000 in line, but, you know, the groups <laughs> yeah. kind of gave them a feeling that they're only 20 away. Yeah, mm. like we had, I think, well, obviously we had a lot less people in group one compared to, say, group 36. But, um, yeah, we'd have, like, people who were 40,000th in line and, you know, they were just like, hey, we're in group 36. <laughs> yeah. So it worked out quite well. And did you find when you guys opened up um, – did all of those people in the wait list actually convert to customers or did you get a bit of a drop-off as well? Um, there was definitely a drop-off and um, the reason for that was just because I felt like we literally did a very MVP thing. 
Um, so it's probably one of my key regrets with Spaceship. Mm. It's just um, we were so focused on speed at that point that we neglected customer experience. Um, so while we did, while we were able to convert, you know, forty thousand people into hundred mil in funds and management, like after, like reflecting on that moment, I always thought, hey, what if that could have become two hundred, uh, two hundred mil, mm. um, as opposed to just one hundred mil? And the key reason I think that is just because we we were so hacky. We like literally had a form. I was calling people to roll them over, so we didn't even have an online way to roll people over. So, so you I called would- forty thousand people. <laughs> Um, so it was between me and two other colleagues oh and we goodness. had a race. Um, oh, wow. So I used to work like 8 a.m. to like maybe 10 p.m. just calling up people and rolling them over. Like I'd memorised all the terms and disclaimers um, <laughs> and I didn't even need to look at the script anymore. Um, and, you know, once I was in the office at 10 p.m. on a Friday and I called up a customer and she's like, are you from like an overseas call centre because it's 10 p.m. in Sydney right now? <laughs> And I was like, no, it's just me in the office, just very startup-y. We just need to roll people over as soon as wow. possible. So I think that's like one of my key regrets is that mm. we should have spent more time on, you know, maybe fleshing out the product a bit more before we launched. So we did mm. have that initial drop-off there, but I think we were able to collect a lot of people when we did launch through just a really smart email drip campaign. So we weren't too fancy with or anything. Um, a lot of it was not just HTML emails. Um, it was like plain text, um, seemed really authentic. So we sort of just mm. went through a drip campaign that like first sort of went into, hey, we're about to launch. And then second was about, hey, this is where the company's up to. So we, they become a lot more personalized with us and understand that we're just, you know, six humans behind this company and we really want to make a really good financial product for you and for our generation specifically. Um, and then the other parts of the drip were just like, okay, these are the companies you're invested in. And basically all the questions I'd asked from my customer persona survey that had been about, you know, what do you care about when it comes to your superannuation? What did you not like about your super- previous superannuation fund? We sort of addressed that in the drip campaign. Awesome. So ideally we were trying to, you know, tackle everything that they mentioned. So then there was no reason for them to mm. say no. You know, obviously you touched then on um, experience now and if you're able to go back, you'd probably change things a little bit. You know, what are some of the other experiences that you've picked up along the way that if you were to go back and tap yourself on the shoulder when you were, you know, starting out in startups that you would, would give advice around optimizing startup flow, looking after customers and customer experience? I think actually the key one that I, like I think for most junior people, so when I started Spaceship, I was definitely considered a junior growth marketer. Um, I think the key thing for junior people was actually spend a lot more time thinking. And it was something my CEO at the time kept saying to me. It was like, mm, and I think you need to think more and sort of thing. So I never really understood what that meant. I was like, I, I, think, I feel like I think a lot. But then <laughs> sometimes it's just about like sectioning out some time in the early, like early in the morning to say, okay, this is what I'm going to work on and mm. this is how it aligns with what I want to achieve in the next three, six, 12 months sort of thing. And I think that actually... Um, you know, helps you learn so much more. Actually makes you do like a retrospective or reflection on what you previously did as well. So I think thinking is very important for setting up strategy. And um, I think something else that like junior marketers get wrong that I probably got wrong is we spent a lot of time looking at data. So I learned SQL overnight from, you know, I heard the guys at Freelancer were really good at SQL. So I went over there for a couple of nights and then I had their, you know, product managers teach me SQL and I picked it up from that. And then I spent a lot of time looking at data and just asking questions. But I think a lot of times really good growth strategies don't necessarily come from data. So I think data is really good for optimization. So when you have an idea and then you're testing out assumptions, um, then I think look at data and see how you can improve on those assumptions. Mm-hmm. But I think a really strong growth strategy is almost like building out a game. Like there's no reason why you need to build out a game. Like no one needs 
to play games. Like, you know, whoever invented League of Legends has, you know, millions of people. <laughs> Are obsessed. you a League of Legends player? No, I'm not. But I just have so many friends obsessed with League of Legends. And I've invested in C Limited now um, because I know because of their association with League of Legends. And now they're producing their own games as well. And I just think, you know, gaming is um, has a lot of good things that have, have been built for gaming. And um, it's turned into like things that have helped like productivity. So a lot of, you know, our video softwares and conferencing calls and things like that were initially built for gaming and then now it's just sort of been expanded into Office, which I thought was like really interesting. But um, the idea is like you just don't, like no one builds a game to solve a problem or to, for any particular reason, but, you know, they build it in a way that increases users um, sorry, increases uh, user engagement and activity. And I feel like building out a product sometimes could be like building out a game. Like you don't need, you know, the data to tell you what to build. Like no one's, you know, none of your users are going to tell you what to build into a game. They just mm. want to see the end result. And I think sometimes building our growth strategy is similar. So it's just about your understanding of the market, your understanding of the industry, um, your competitors. Um, and when I say competitors, it's not just like, you know, Uber's competitors is Lyft. It's like, well, what does Uber do? It's not just a ride um, hailing service. It's more like it's something that takes you from point A to point B, right? So that means you're competing with, um, you know, why don't I just walk there? Um, why mm. don't I drive there? Why don't I catch a taxi? Why don't I catch public transport? And you have to figure out like, okay, well, am I tapping into those markets? If not, like stay clear away. And if I am tapping into those markets, then how do I make myself um, a better alternative to that particular competitor? Um, and I think that's like really interesting with um, competitor analysis and building out a strong growth strategy as well. So I think a lot of that comes down to like thinking, just like thinking, reading and spending a lot of time um, truly understanding like the industry that you're in, the customers you're trying to serve. That's, that's incredible insight. You know, one of the things I'd love to dive into is, you know, you're still early in your career. So what companies are you looking at, uh, you know, in terms of to get your inspiration? You know, what leaders are you looking at to get inspiration to continue to grow uh, as an entrepreneur and a startup exec? Like I spend a lot of time reading up case studies of really successful companies. So the thing with really strong growth strategies and acquisition channels is that none of them are replicable to every single company. So if you have to have the same business model in order to replicate a acquisition channel or a growth strategy. And so I spend a lot of time actually just reading up different business models and how they grew to the way they, they grew. Like I think one of the more, more interesting ones is Twitter. So the, Twitter's early product lead called Josh Elman actually 10 x um, the user's signups um, from just improving onboarding. So, so initially when you Googled what is dot, dot, dot onto Google, um, the second result would be what is Twitter? Like what does it do? So no one really understood what Twitter, Twitter meant. Um, and so because of that, they sort of sucked at signing up people and converting mm -hmm. them and getting to finish the sign-up flow. And so Josh Elman came in and he completely revamped their onboarding strategy. So the way that he did it was extremely smart. And I think onboarding, when you think about what metrics you're looking at um, when you're building out and what to optimise for, I think you're really looking at activation. So activation is the moment that the consumer experiences the core value of your product for the first time. So, for example, for Twitter, this would be when they follow 28 people. The reason it's 28 is because, you know, say someone tweets like once a day, um, then you'll get new content at least once a day. Um, and it's just like to get you to continuously come back onto Twitter to read content or hopefully post your own. So um, activation and all activation metrics like chain differ a lot from company to company. Like it's just sort of you need to think about like, you know, what's that action they need to take to more likely retain as a customer? Mm -hmm. So I think that's like the key question that you're going to ask. And then you should optimize your onboarding process just for that key metric. 
And I think the way that Josh Elman built it, which I think was extremely smart, was that he um, he built out like a multi-step form. So you've got your typical, you know, put in your personal details so we yep. can skip over that. But then I think what's really interesting is he did, um, you know, import your contacts, um, import um, your friends or like connect with your friends on Facebook or whatever. And then basically we were, they were able to generate immediately um, you know, a list of people that you could follow straight away. And what happens is I actually ticked everyone on that list already. Wow. So you'd have to untick them and manually, you know, remove them in order to unfollow them. Gotcha. So the easiest way would obviously just to click follow 28 immediately at the bottom of the page. Um, and so they made that the easiest thing. They also asked you, hey, what are your interests? So say you click music and then the next page would be a bunch of musicians. Right. Um, probably the most popular ones. And then again, like they're all already ticked mm-hmm. and then you'd have to untick them manually in order to get rid of them. So the easiest way is to click the button, just like automatically follow 28. So when you're done with that onboarding experience, most likely you would have already followed 28 people. Wow. And so that's instant activation. So I think, um, and it's also what they call building out an instant timeline. So the moment that you're signed on, you already have content from people you want to read from. So I think that was one of the smartest onboarding journeys that I've probably seen. And again, like they've 10x the conversion rate of that onboarding process just from implementing these practices. I think that one was something I really looked up to. And it's not so much about like taking away the tactics, but more about more about like the way they were thinking about the problem, which is, you know, how can I get them, like how do I remove as much friction as I can to get them to that one point, which is to follow 28 people? And I think that's a really important question to ask when it comes to onboarding. Awesome. That's fascinating. All right, I think we are almost at time. So we have three final questions for you. Number one, what is your marketing stack? What's your go-to marketing stack? For early stage startups who don't want to spend too much money on their marketing stack, like I always recommend Hotjar. So Hotjar is a, um, it's just like an analytics of data visualization tool. You implement like this tracking code on your website um, and it will basically screen record for you. So it's extremely stalkerish. So you can basically watch you know, everyone's like mouse movements. You can see where they scroll up, down, up or down to. Um, you can also see, um, you know, the heat map as well of your page. So like what are the, what content are people actually interacting with? Um, and they, they also have like funnel building as well. But I think they're actually removing that feature. So it might not be as useful in the future, but um, Hotjar is free as well. So if, you, if like the paid versions are more like you would be able to access all your data, whereas the free version, like they only give you a sample of 2,000 or 5,000 visits or something like that. So that's a really good one for early stage founders who don't want to spend too much money on marketing. Um, one that I recommend you should spend money on, even if it gets a bit expensive, is Segment. So Segment's a data uh, management warehouse. It basically allows for like inputs of data from your personal database, as w- and it also outputs it to like third-party tools and also accepts input from third-party tools as well. So basically what you could do with this is you know, you could link it with data visualization tools and then you'll be able to build out funnels or build out graphs um, in order to see, you know, what exactly is happening in your company. Um, another good reason to have it is just like, you know, um, it's a great way to link to email marketing tools. So you can build out like extremely nuanced lists so that, you, you know, you can tackle each um customer during at each like a specific point in the customer journey and send them an email at that time or a text at that time. So I think segments are really good. And it's just good because if you don't do it early on, then you end up with a lot of technical debt, like building out a data warehouse after you already have a lot of data, like whether it's lost or still in flight somewhere. um, It's yeah, it's a big, big process. So I'd recommend getting that like early on. 
Did you have both of those when you were at Spaceship? So Spaceship, we had Segment and it just like right. made my life so much yeah. easier. Like when, And then I moved to some other, and I set that up at Curious Thing as well. But Bright is currently implementing Segment now and it's become like a three to six month process. So it's, do it early. Um, yeah, definitely <laughs> something you should do early. So I think, yeah, those two are really good um, growth stack tools. All right, what is your most surprising win from your whole career, if you can pick one? I think after listening to like a whole lot of um, growth marketing talks and, you know, understanding the power of digital, I think my most surprising wins is like off not what's not in digital. So all the above the line campaigns, like I always thought, you know, oh, this would never work because we can't attribute it to anything. Um, there's no direct click through. So it's not like a Facebook ad where the user sees it and can click through straight away. It's sort of like, oh, they have to remember it. Then they have to Google it. Um, and then, you know, do something with it that way. But I think um, surprisingly some of the best campaigns is probably some of the above the line campaigns that I ran and this is probably most surprising. Um, so for Spaceship we ran a billboard campaign. So we did a takeover of the Bondi Junction train station. So we had Spaceship ads basically everywhere. Um, and when it comes to attribution, all we did was we were like, okay, well, the customers coming from the Bondi Junction postcode will attribute to that campaign. And that worked quite well. If you look at Koala, like they've done amazingly with the billboards. Yeah. We, we love the Koala team. Yeah. 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 So they did a great, like, sorry, Ikea billboard, um, <laughs> which they had like a discount code. Um, and that was a great way to attribute it back to that billboard campaign. Um, at Bright, I did one recently on radio just because tradies spend so much time in their car on the way to work and you can get like the cheaper times as well. So, you know, like your 5am to 9am when most people aren't awake, yeah. um, you know, we can get those slots and get those ads um, out to tradies as well. Um, and you can get them at like really good distress rates as well. So, so it works actually quite well. Um, and then people will just Google you. So you need to make sure that you also have like online campaigns to supplement the program. So don't just, you know, do above the line with no thought about how to do attribution and how to um, actually get them to convert digitally. Yep. So I think it has to be like above the line and then make sure you're bidding on, you know, misspellings of your brand name. Mm. Um, make sure, you know, you're running retargeting campaigns so that people who actually land there, like you're retargeting them so you're not just wasting ad dollars. So I think, um, yeah, above the line actually works really well. And I think, um you know, if you're a B2B company or if you're like ready to scale your B2C, then, you know, take a look at above the line. It's great for building trust and awareness. Awesome. Okay. And so for our final question, what is the most powerful question you've asked in your sign up flow to your users? So I think one that's interesting is there's recently been a shift away from the typical, you know, how likely are you to rec recommend uh, this product to a friend or a colleague out of 10 as a measure of success, like in terms of customer mm -hmm. experience? Um, and the most recent shift has been like, how disappointed are you if you're no longer able to use this product anymore? And I think that's a really great way to measure customer experience. So I think that's a really powerful question to understand, you know, do you actually have customers that need your product? And this answers like, I guess, a really obvious product market fit question. Like, do you, will your customers be disappointed? And I think mm. when you're looking at what metrics you want to measure by to say, okay, well, am I doing well? Am I doing badly? I think you know, 40% is probably normal for a very early stage startup. So around 40% will be very disappointed. That's like a good place to start. And you ideally want to build it up to around 60. And then I think um, the best product in the world with the, um, sorry, the best product with the highest um, percentage of very disappointed for this particular question was, um, I think like your Facebooks or something like that and then usually it's like around hovering around the 70% mark so 70% is like you're doing an amazing job 60% mm. 
to 50% is good, but 40% is pretty normal. And I think if you feel below 40%, it doesn't mean you should, you know, quit your startup straight away and just give up. Um, it's sort of like it's it's a place to start, but you want to eventually be able to build up to above 50, around 60% mark. Well, look, Anna, thank you so much for joining us on our very first podcast, the uh, Net Positive Podcast. Thank you, Anna. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Net Positive Podcast brought to you by Upflowing. Thank you.